Hey guys, this episode is about how travel has changed in the 20 years since my first big vagabonding trip across Asia. And it's brought to you by Tortuga, which is the backpack brand I just used in my 2019 travels across Asia. You know, I'm trying to remember what kind of backpack I used back in 1999, and I'm pretty sure it was this gaudy bright green trail pack that was gifted to me while I was living in Korea. And that pack worked fine, I guess, but it wasn't as easy and as useful as a Tortuga because unlike those big trail packs, Tortuga backpacks are directly designed with travel in mind. I went around the world for three months this winter with a Tortuga set-out pack that I used in tandem with Tortuga's lightweight Outbreaker Day Pack, and it made my travel so much simpler than in 1999 when I had to check the oversized green backpack on airlines, and the inside of that pack tended to jumble my gear together. In contrast, the 35-liter Tortuga set out was a tasteful gray color that didn't draw attention to itself, and it was small enough to fit in an overhead bin, and it's designed so that the gear inside was easy to organize and access as I went from place to place. To take a look at the Tortuga set out and the Tortuga Outbreaker and all of their features, go to rolfpotscom Tortuga, and if you see something you'd like to order for yourself, you can get 10% off the cost of the order by using the promo code DEVIATE. All right. Here's the episode. It's easy to fool ourselves into thinking that these new technological tools are now the ground zero of human activity, when in fact, it's actually so much more convenient than it used to be that in a way, we just need to figure out how to use this technology to help us and not to turn us into complete morons who are staring at our phone all day. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today I talk about how independent travel has changed in the past 20 years, specifically because it was 20 years ago that I left on my first big vagabonding trip across Asia, a trip that would end up taking two and a half years and result in my book Vagabonding, which I wrote in a little book in Thailand when the journey was not yet entirely over. Now, the heart of this episode is going to be an essay I wrote entitled Five Ways Indie Travel Has Changed and Stayed the Same Since 1999. And to explore this topic, I've brought on Sean Keener, the chairman of Airtrex, the online multi-stop trip planning service that sponsored my flight legs for the three-month trip I took around the world this winter. But business aside, I've known Sean for almost two decades now. He started vagabonding around the same time I did back in the 1990s. So he seemed like a great guy to bring on to talk about how travel has changed since then, both from a per personal perspective and from an industry perspective. So, Sean, how are you doing, buddy? I'm doing awesome. Grateful to share some time with you today, Rolf. Yeah, it's, it's good to talk. It's, it's funny that we, we talk yeah. informally all the time, but now we're actually doing an interview. And so I, I don't think I actually got to know you until about 2001, so practically yesterday, right? That's right. Um, That's right. It's hard to believe. <laughs> so what were you doing in night? What were you doing exactly 20 years ago? What, what, what was your travel experience, and, and where were you? So 20 years ago, Rolf, I had just co-founded the Boots and All website. So we had launched it in January of 1999, and one of the other co-founders and I, Chris Heydrich, and I had done a, a trip virtually around the world in 96 and 97. That was the genesis of what we thought would be a great way to just connect travelers because we, we found that one of the, the – really the best part of travel wasn't the pictures that you took. It was the people that you met and uh, stretching outside your normal, your normal way of looking at things. I thought uh, everybody liked the Cubs, Bears, Bulls, Blackhawk, and beer before I left Chicago. And when I came back – I quickly realized that my way is not the only way. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> we, we can talk some more about Chicago, and it sounds like you haven't you haven't entirely lost your Chicago accent, Sean. But um, it comes up on occasion. <laughs> so, what was the mission of Boots and All? I mean, I've been I've been a partner with Boots and All since sure. Vagabonding came out. What was the mission behind that website? Really, you know, we we didn't know what we were doing at first, and you know, sometimes I question if I even know what I'm doing today. And I say that just with a lot of humility because we've been in the industry for 20 years. But it was really to to bring the experience of travel into daily life because I thought there were so many lessons that I learned on that trip, Rolf, that are applicable to normal life. And I was kind of frustrated that it wasn't part of my educational experience. It was something I needed to do on my own and really kind of go against what everybody that I knew 
did. You know, people thought I was a little bit crazy to go around the world and leave my job and just just kind of wander the earth, which today, you know, maybe we'll talk about that uh, after your uh, about your essay is just that, you know, it's not as odd as it was maybe 20 years ago. That, that's for sure. It was it was such an idiosyncratic thing because you didn't have at your fingertips, you know, a thousand travel bloggers, some of whom may live two blocks away from you. And, and, <laughs> right, right. and, and we'll get into that. We'll get into the pluses and the minuses of this technological leg up. But real quick, before we jump into the essay, what is the most salient memory of that 96, 97 trip that doesn't really exist anymore? For example, I'm thinking of that that ping of the dial-up internet at the internet cafe, that yeah. sound that's yeah. just, you never think about anymore. What what's a, what's a strong memory that you have from that era that's just completely gone now? There's so, there's so many. For me, it was all about people. Um, not everybody had an email address back then. I did have an email address, which I checked maybe three or four times over the course of a year. Wow. So it wasn't, it wasn't probably the, the most salient thing that, that just, I don't think exists in the same way anymore is post restante, you know, people that cared about me, like my mom, my dad, and a few friends would send me letters and or very small care packages if I knew I was going to a certain place. And I knew I was going to end up at India at some point. So I look forward to going to Post Restante in the Delhi uh, main post office and picking up a few letters, which were, you know, it was since communication was so rare and it was very expensive to call. So and, you know, and just I, so, I, I only did it a few times. Yeah. Just so listeners know, poste restante or poste restante or however you say it, um, it's <laughs> basically it's just like a a part of a local post office that set aside packages and letters for travelers, um, and you could stagger into the Bangkok uh, poste restante office, and I did that many times, months after your package had arrived, and, and, and there it was. And so it just seems really strange now. Um, and you know, we'll, I'll get into some of this stuff in the essay. And then w once the essay is over, we can talk at, at greater length about what's changed since then. But that's, that's really, hey, I got true. an idea. Okay. I got an idea. I, for, do you know if this still works? I didn't, I, I haven't thought about it. Ooh, that's a good question. And, and I, and I invite I, listeners to let me know. It's like, I, I've never yeah. had occasion because you like now posted restaurant, you can just like email your Airbnb host and say, hey, can right, you pick right. up a package for me? You're, you can, you can yeah. find, you can throw out something on Twitter and say, hey, I need, I need somebody to pick me something up in Delhi, and somebody will say, oh yeah, my cousin's boyfriend lives in Delhi, and and right, then, right. So, so uh, before we jump in the essay, I'll just put this call out to my listeners: Have you used Poste Restant recently? Uh, and if so, <laughs> and if so, how did it work? Um, but now we'll 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 come back to all of these ways that uh, that travel has changed uh, for better for worse uh, and for for more experiential and less experiential ways. But for now, here's my essay about how travel has changed in my own experience in the past twenty years. Five ways indie travel has changed and stayed the same since 1999. An essay by Rolf Potts. 20 years ago, when I set off on my first multi-month vagabonding trip around Asia, I noticed that a lot of backpackers I met, cool indie travelers from places like Denmark and Tasmania and Oregon, were fixated with the notion of what travel must have been like in the 1970s. Indeed, as enjoyable as Thailand and India and Japan were in 1999, there is this sense that we'd missed out on an earlier, purer era of travel some two decades before, a time before the advent of dial-up internet cafes and international phone cards and backpacker ghetto street kiosks that sold fat boy slim cassettes. Earlier this year, when I first arrived in Sumatra on what was to be the first leg of a 20-year vagabonding anniversary tour across Asia, I had trouble wrapping my head around the wonky math that can frame the passage of time. In 1999, the very notion of 1979 felt as antique and faded as an old photo print from that era, yet to my 2019 self, 1999 still feels like it wasn't that long ago. Sure, dial-up internet connections are ancient history, as is the notion of using a plastic tape to access your music or a plastic phone card to call home, but is the way we travel today really all that different from the way we traveled two decades ago? My answer to that question, perhaps inevitably, is yes and no. No doubt an indie traveler in his 20s right now might view 1999 in the archaic, romanticized sense that my 20-something self once regarded 1970s-era travel, 
But on-the-ground reality feels more nuanced than that. In a certain sense, the giddy excitement that accompanied the early days of my 2019 journey felt nearly identical to the emotions I felt at the outset of my 1999 trip. I've been savoring the humid air and the unfamiliar smells that come with a visit to this part of the world, the ongoing rituals of problem-solving and self-education, the enforced patience and simple English and newly learned phrases required to get around, I've also found familiar joy in the notion that independent travel can blow your days wide open, if you allow it to, giving you options, not prescriptions, and enabling you to walk or ride a bus or sit still in a new place until your day becomes interesting. For all the visceral similarities to my earlier journeys, however, my first month of travel in 2019 has cast an interesting lens on what I experienced in 1999. Here are five key similarities and differences to what I experienced two decades ago. 1. Indie Traveler has gotten easier in ways that can enhance the journey. About a week after departing on my winter journey through Asia, I wrote the following passage in my journal. More than steak or bourbon, I am dying for a decent map to Sumatra. Indeed, as much as I enjoyed riding a rental motorbike in the highlands outside the Sumatran hill station town of Bukitinggi, my journey was complicated by the fact that road signs can be hard to decipher and paper maps to the area were sorely lacking in detail. This all came to a head when I took a wrong turn near the volcanic shores of Lake Mananjau and rode halfway to the Indian Ocean before realizing that I was no longer following the lake road. This presented an interesting conundrum. Should I turn back to the beauty and certainty of the lake road or strike out into the unknown? There's a reason why travelers tend to end up at the same awesome spots, such as the Lake Mananjau Road, but isn't travel about the serendipity of the unexpected? It was while wrestling with this conundrum, and still wishing for a detailed paper map of the area, that I realized I had downloaded an iPhone app called Maps.me a couple years earlier. I'd always been too stubborn to use it, but recalling that its navigation function worked offline, I opened it up and began to search for which road I was traveling on. Within seconds, I knew not just what road I was on, but where exactly I was on that road, and what other roads were reachable within a 20-mile radius. In that moment, I was thus able to see what awaited me in all directions, sensing that a coastal road would be a bottleneck I headed inland, circumnavigated the lake, and rode up a nearby mountain ridge which offered a gorgeous view of the caldera below. I have since related this story to several younger travelers who have pointed out that for less than $10 I could have bought an Indonesian SIM card for the month and used any number of live data navigation apps as well. I tend not to buy SIM cards for the simple and faintly cantankerous reason that I got along just fine without live data 20 years ago. That said, my stubbornness hasn't extended to the two dozen or so travel-friendly apps I use on Wi-Fi or in offline situations, Google Translate and Duolingo for language reference and learning, WhatsApp and Skype for making onward arrangements or calling home, the XE Currency app for calculating exchange rates, Trip Scout or Lonely Planet for planning city travel, iPhone notes and voice memos for field reporting, Instagram for broadcasting glimpses of my journey in near real time. Not to mention mobile banking apps to manage my finances, Apple Podcasts and Netflix to entertain myself during airport layovers, and even Sky Guide to clue me in on which equatorial constellations I'm seeing at night. 2. Indie travel has gotten easier in ways that can limit the journey. While smartphone apps can make travel easier in many ways, however, they can also get in the way of a more organic travel experience. I've often said that three big gifts of travel are the opportunities it offers a person to be lonely, lost, and bored, and smartphones have made these counterintuitive travel blessings easier and easier to avoid. Sure, the reality of being lost or lonely or bored can be dispiriting, but these situations have a way of challenging us to push our comfort zones, and getting away from your comfort zone has always been a key step in achieving serendipity and self-discovery on the road. 20 years ago, for example, without Maps.me at my fingertips, I might have pushed myself to explore the less backpacker-friendly ocean road rather than turning back for the lake road, or at the very least I would have stopped and chatted up some local people for advice. Moreover, while I've been encouraging folks to work through their lostness, loneliness, and boredom for the past two decades, I confess that I have at times cheated on these very principles during my first month here in Asia. I've not only listened to podcasts and watched Netflix downloads in airports, sometimes I've indulged in these diversions in my guest house when I could have been out finding local Indonesian entertainments. 
Other times I've burned off those same guest house hours replying to Instagram comments or texting people back home when I could have been out chatting with Sumatrans or other backpackers. In pointing this out, I'm not saying that it's bad to assuage boredom or loneliness with your smartphone. I'm just saying that those are the same workaday strategies we use to kill time at home. And travel at its best is about finding rather than killing time. Travel is also about engaging your immediate environment. It's about living in the moment rather than compulsively pulling up the screen every time you feel uncomfortable. Smartphones and smartphone apps have literally been engineered to make us think we need them. The key on the road is to find ways to use them without letting them distract us from what's right in front of our eyes. 3. Photos have become an irrevocable part of how we travel, and that's okay. 20 years ago, during that first vagabonding journey across Asia, I traveled with a point-and-shoot film camera. Given the expense and inconvenience of buying and developing film along the way, I rarely shot more than two to four rolls of film per month as I was traveling. That shook out to be about 12 to 24 travel photos a week, which is far fewer images than I average on a typical afternoon using my iPhone camera. Taking photos in 2019 has become so easy and so central to my narrative sense of a journey, even as a writer, that the frugal conservatism of my 1999 photo habits can seem a bit peculiar in retrospect. Back at the turn of the millennium, however, a kind of conventional travel wisdom asserted that constantly taking photos was at odds with the experience of travel itself, and the spectacle of a camera hanging from the neck of a middle-aged man, along with a floral print shirt, was cartoon shorthand for an obnoxious tourist. As Susan Sontag noted in her 1977 book on photography, the very act of taking pictures assuages general feelings of disorientation that are likely to be exacerbated by travel, and most tourists feel compelled to put the camera between themselves and whatever is remarkable that they encounter. Unsure of other responses, they take a picture." End quote. Two generations after Sontag wrote this, there isn't much of a debate left of the role of photography in travel. With few exceptions, photos have become central to how we all see our journeys. This is in part because our photo habits have become an extension of a general photo mania that applies just as well to the lives we lead at home. I was constantly reminded of this in Sumatra by the very fact that the Indonesians who lived there seemed to be taking as many smartphone photos as I was. 20 years ago, asking a local person to pose for a photo in a place like Southeast Asia was a one-way endeavor that required courtesy and care. In 2019, people in places like Indonesia are so used to posing for each other's photos that they invariably thrill at the novelty of mugging for an outsider. I've lost count of how many times I have myself been asked to pose for exuberant, slightly blurry selfies with groups of Sumatran teenagers. 4. Indie travel is still crazy cheap if you go to inexpensive places. When my book Vagabonding came out 16 years ago, I noted that I'd kept my travel expenses down to around $1,000 a month when I'd wander through inexpensive regions of the world like Southeast Asia and the Middle East. Readers have occasionally contacted me to ask if all these years later this shoestring budget estimate still holds true. After a month in Indonesia, I can say that the answer is yes. Having tallied my expenses, four weeks in Sumatra cost me around $1,200, and that includes a domestic airplane flight, three nights in airport hotels, ATM fees, a five-night guided trek in the Mintawai Islands, and a $20 fine for overstaying my Indonesian visa by a day. The best part is that I didn't travel this cheap by resigning myself to long-haul chicken buses and dirtbag backpacker hostels. Not that there's anything wrong with either of those things. At Lake Toba, a gorgeous volcanic caldera in north-central Sumatra, I paid $11.75 a night for a private room with a balcony just a few feet from the shoreline. At Lake Mananjau, I paid $12.50 a night for a cottage 10 steps from the deep blue water. At Rimba Eco Lodge, a beautiful stretch of wilderness one hour by boat south of Padang, I paid $18 for three meals a day and a private room 90 seconds from a reef full of butterfly fish and sea turtles. My best value in Sumatra was a cottage two minutes from a sheer cliff waterfall in the Harau Valley that cost me $8.50 a night, breakfast included. That said, the stunning vistas and bargain prices at these places involved a bit of hardship and sacrifice. The budget-friendly guesthouse rooms I mention here were pretty basic, and often all I got was a bed, a mosquito net, an outlet to recharge my electronic devices, a cabinet or wall hooks for stowing my gear a porch hammock for afternoon reading and naps, and a cold water bathroom. 
My Lotus Pond Cottage in the Harau Valley didn't have hot water, though considering this part of Sumatra is about 10 miles from the equator, I can't say it was a problem. Itinerant travel aside, Indonesia is the kind of place you might visit just to chill out in a single beautiful place and recharge for a month or two. Swimming in a lake or the ocean each morning, going for long hikes or motorbike rides, learning a bit of the local language and culture, eating healthy, waking up with the sun and turning in early, sitting in a hammock and reading all the books you've been meaning to read. All for a fraction of the price you'd spend on food, entertainment, and rent or mortgage back home, let alone a commercial tourist resort in some other high-traffic part of the tropics. Part 5. Most places in the world have not been, quote, discovered. These days, it's common to see pessimistic news reports of mass tourism overwhelming certain beloved destinations, of tourists pricing out locals in Venice, of Game of Thrones fans clogging up the streets of Dubrovnik, of Instagrammers bickering over selfie space at the Taj Mahal, of Machu Picchu limiting tourist access to certain times of year, of Thailand indefinitely closing PP Island's Maya Beach so it can recover from two decades of overvisitation. Even the fabled ends of the earth... Antarctica, the Galapagos, the Nepal approach to Mount Everest have struggled to deal with increasing number of tourists over the course of the past 20 years. These articles invariably point out that the travel world has been, quote, discovered to the detriment of the very places we dream of visiting. Having just spent a month in the Sumatran landscapes that rival the splendor of anything I've seen elsewhere in Southeast Asia, I have to assert that contrary to the alarmist tones of these articles, the world isn't close to being, quote, discovered. Sure, 10 dozen marquee destinations around the world will continue to face the challenges of dealing with mass tourism, but part of the solution here is to seek quieter, just as enchanting places that by their relative anonymity never land on your average tourist bucket list. Tourism to the Indonesian hotspot island of Bali has boomed over the course of the past two decades, resulting in high season water shortages and traffic jams. Yet Bali is just one mid-sized island on an Indonesian archipelago that encompasses thousands of beautiful and culturally distinctive islands. The beaches, rice terraces, indigenous cultures, and surf breaks of Sumatra in many ways rival or even exceed those of Bali, yet I spent a month there and rarely crossed paths with tourists beyond a handful of backpackers, surfers, European retirees, and Indonesian vacationers. Which felt strange to me since 20 years ago, Sumatra, and Lake Toba in particular, was a popular stop on what was then called the Banana Pancake Trail, a string of scenic, sleepy, backpacker-friendly destinations that stretched across Southeast Asia. Sumatra had garnered a reputation as a challenging yet blissful stepping stone on the overland route from Bangkok to Bali, but with the recent rise of budget airlines, many backpackers now choose to fly directly to Bali from Singapore and avoid Sumatra's lousy roads altogether. Travelers willing to embrace the inconvenience of places like Sumatra will find a wealth of less, quote, discovered destinations most anywhere in the world they wander. Moreover, it's worth mentioning here that the very compulsion to declare that a place has been, quote, discovered is pegged to an outmoded way of thinking that hasn't been relevant in more than a century. Indeed, throughout the so-called Age of Exploration, colonial-era adventurers had a knack for, quote, discovering things that local populations had known about for hundreds of years. A better way of thinking about exploration, I'd reckon, is to frame it on a more personal level of awareness and receptivity, of learning to pay attention and improvise your way into new directions regardless of what was on your bucket list when you left home. All right, so that was my essay. Uh, Sean, you told me that you sort of have your own short list of things that have changed in your own experience uh, in the past 20 or so years. What are some examples of things that, that you feel have changed? And we can just talk about all of them. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're similar to yours in your essay, Rolf. You're much more eloquent than I am. But I put, you know, just this one's obvious to everyone. But when I reflected about what the world and independent travel or vagabonding was like in 1999, the one, the one thing that stood out is just the influence of technology and probably the mobile device in particular. I remember in 2008, I everywhere I was going, that just people were on devices. This was before the iPhone, but even in internet cafes, everybody was on Facebook. Yeah, it, and it kind of changed the the hostel meeting room. Came, changed from a place where you met people that were currently on the road to communicating to people who were not there. And of course, that's 
as you you mentioned in your essay, when you were in uh, Sumatra, you were able to you know, use map.me to say, wait a minute, I don't have to just grind this out. I can make an intelligent decision. Uh, so that, that it's just had such a big influence. And I can't even think of all the different ways that it has with, let's just say with, you know, a light side and a dark side. I'm not going to say good and bad. I'm just going to say it just, you know, just, I think, I think overall it's good though. Number two, we can touch on. Well, I was just going to say yeah. we can touch on both of those because those those really detail sure. dovetail with a couple of my points. And in fact, I can remember yeah, the first exactly. time I was. It was 2007 for me, sitting in a hostel lounge, and nobody really wanted to talk like they used to. Like everybody was in their device, and it was so weird that uh, for for a decade I had been using hostel lounges as a resource. Anyway, go go. go we'll talk about yeah. that more as we go down yeah. the list. But give me your second one. So my second one is just the the rise of the influencer traveler. And, you know, I equate this to when I first really got into independent travel, let's just say in the mid, mid nineties, the badge of honor was how long you've been traveling. You know, Mm -hmm. it was kind of the badge of honor, at least at first, I I didn't really care about it, but I could sense people were attracted and or not attracted to others by that. But today it's just, there's the rise of technology. So many people are like, you know, I'm going to talk bad about you on Instagram or, you know, I have a lot of people. Can I stay for free? There's just, it's, it has a big impact on what you see in many, many places, many of the popular places, of course, but it's just, it's industry wide and, and just traveler wise. I think most people know people that are trying to be an influencer, influencer or are an influencer. So that's again related maybe to uh, one of your five. Yeah, and, and and we can we can flesh that out a, bit, a little bit later, but I will point out right now that that's part of travel media. It used to be the big glossies would catch a little flack for for having pictures that were too pretty uh or for having an ethical constraint about accepting freebies in exchange for covering a certain region. Now that has atomized so much that every single influencer has to think, how honest are my pictures? Um, and then what am I really trying to do with this? And so it, it, it goes down to a, an essential es- uh, a question of what is true? What, what is being depicted? And actually, t- not to give away too much, but I say that's, that's all the more reason to go yourself because the stuff you Agreed. see in glossy Agreed. magazines and on Instagram is going to be just – fake enough, you know, just amped up and amplified enough that being there in person with the five senses and smelling and feeling that place is going to be much better than what you see. Anyhow, go totally, go on, totally. Go on to number three. I'll go on to my, totally. But number three for me is there's just so many more people doing it from a pure number standpoint, number one, Rolf, and number two, just from a diversity standpoint. Mm. In the mid-90s, you know, the, the, the wall was still newly down, and there wasn't a ton of Eastern Europeans that I met on the road. There were a few, but now today, they are all over the world, you know, joining the traditional long-term vagabonding travelers of, let's just say, Australia, New Zealand, UK, and, you know, maybe some Americans. And then just also so many more folks from let's just say Asia as a continent in general are traveling there as their incomes and the middle class has grown there. It's just, it's a much more diverse scenario versus popping into a hostel where, you know, I would say at the time it was, it was largely white. Now it's a lot more diversity. So that, that part's neat to see. Um, you want yeah. me to keep going on four and five? Well, I'll just, just because I have, I, yeah. just because it's lighting up my own brain, I'll just, I'll just point out that I think, <laughs> Within America, it's travel and vagabonding is going deeper into the middle class. Um, yeah, that 20 yeah. years ago when you traveled, odds are it was somebody who was already a little sophisticated. Maybe they went to Middlebury College or they're from Oregon or they're from a place that was, yeah. that was already fairly normal to travel internationally. Whereas yeah, now yeah. you get more you know, working class or, or near working class people, people from – Places like Kansas, where I'm from, sure, um, sure, and and not just um, white dudes, you know, um, women and, and people of color who suddenly there, there's less barriers, there's less mystique, it's less seen as this monolithic thing. And odds are, if you can go on and find blogs or or social media of people who are pretty similar to you, and and you can make that that travel happen. So that's been really that's been a really fun thing to see. It is, it is, and and. 
you know, one of the reasons we we started, you know, boots and all was we 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 want to see basically, Rolf, a vagabonding trip on every resume. <laughs> yeah. You know, we call it you can call it a gap year, you can call it whatever you want, but it's just it's such a great experiential learning tool. And of course, in your book, you know, which we're incredibly inspired by as well, you just get that it's it's you know, you get tricked into traveling like, oh, I'm gonna take a picture in front of the Eiffel Tower. That's you think you want to go because of that, but then you realize pretty quickly after a few parties and a few of those things, it's about the people. And, 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 uh, and, and it really yeah. is about learning. And again, I'll, I'll let you get on to number four in a second, but, um, sure, sure. Uh, one thing I said in my book, uh, you know, put, put your trip on your resume and you know, early on people were like, really? And now it's like, well, of course, because, um, you have to be, you have to be, I think the reputation 20 years ago was it was travel was sort of this irresponsible hippy dippy thing. Um, and maybe it never really was that irresponsible, but now because people are doing it and talking about it so much more, um, you can, you can really showcase the people you've met, the cultures, you know, better, um, from having traveled in a way that there's no reason to hide your travels on your resume anymore. Totally, totally. And, you know, we can learn so much on, the web today about all these places. But, and I, sometimes I keep thinking, oh, I'm, one day I'm not going to have to go. There's going to be virtual reality. You know, I'm not going to have to go, but the, I, I don't know if it's within the next 10 or 20 years at least, because there's nothing like smelling, feeling, sweating, getting cold and just being around people and being able, because breaking bread with someone, having a cup of tea, it's a lot different than having an internet chat with someone. Not that you can't learn something, not that you can't learn something, but it, it is very different. So, totally. you know, for my, for my number four, it's similar, you know, to one of yours, I, you know, you put the cost is still incredibly cheap. You know, we say that you can, you can do a full year of vagabonding or independent travel. So we say, you know, about, let's say 16 to $20,000 per year. Now you can do it less expensive. You can work along the way, stay in uh, even less expensive places and you can spend a lot more, but probably the, the thing that I would add to it, Rolf, is just that there is so much more infrastructure in popular routes along the way than there were 20 years ago. You could just see the, the growth in many of the hubs is just outstanding. And it's not just high end and low end. There's lots of comfortable mid-level places. And you shared some of the prices that you, you know, you can stay for still, you know, 10, $15 a day in, off the beaten places in Indonesia. And that's, that's the case in many places around the world still to this day. It's almost unbelievable when you think about the prices in many of the modern uh, megalopolises of the world, London, New York, San Francisco, Seattle. I mean, it's just, it's, it's almost unbelievable. Yeah, it's it's amazing to see, and I've I've interviewed some 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 hikers, some walkers who will appear later this season in the podcast who explain how, if you're willing to to walk everywhere and sleep in a tent, then it gets even cheaper than than, than that, and that's that's probably a topic for a different podcast. But I just will throw that out there that. It's all a matter of setting limits. Like if, if you want to confine yourself to a five-star hotel world, then that's fine. And I'm sure that there's some pleasure there. But man, there are just sure. so many options of where you can stay and how you can go. And the more you can sacrifice and the more you can learn, the cheaper it gets. Totally, totally. And I'd say that you know, there's very few wrong ways. There's, mo there's lots of right ways, if you want to say it that way. You know, there's just uh, there's so many ways to do vagabonding or independent travel. And, you know, much like Cubs, Bears, Bulls, Blackhawks and beer, there's not one way to do it. So my my fifth my fifth reason is just the the interpret, you know, gap year. The, the why of this sort of travel has taken off. And we touched on that a little bit before uh, from from going for three weeks to three months or longer, it's just more common and understood as a rite of passage and as a valuable part of life. So that's we kind of hit on that previously. You you talked a little bit about that when I got into the why, but it's just my my friends in Chicago when I went were you know they thought I was crazy, and no one in my community had done that. Today, even some of them have gone off to do it later in life at different points. So it's not yeah, it's just nice to see it becoming. Uh, more, like you said, getting into the middle class and other uh, socioeconomic classes too, not just uh, upper 
middle-class white people or whatever, whatever it was back then. <laughs> yeah. Or even just people who've, who've been to fancy schools who know 10 people who've yeah, done it already. Yeah. Um, exactly. and, and exactly. so I think we've had a lot more metaphors and this could be a good transition, uh, into going into a little bit more detail on these points is the idea of the bucket list, which was like a movie 10 years ago and didn't sure. the phrase bucket list. I don't know if it existed 20 years ago, but it's sort of a clunky concept, but I think bucket lists work because it gets you out the door. You know, that once yeah. you have your bucket yeah. list in your hand and you go to point number one, by the time you check off the Eiffel Tower or whatever, if you have the right attitude, if you if you have the right why questions in your mind, um, then you'll discover 20 things that are as amazing as that Eiffel Tower or other bucket list things. The, the, basically, the secret of the bucket list, which is, again, a new concept that really wasn't batted around 20 years ago um, – once you have that, it just, it's just something that opens the door. What's on your bucket list doesn't matter because the doors that will open once you're out looking for your bucket list items will be so much more amazing than anything you could have dreamt of at home. Couldn't agree more that it's uh, just, just starting with some sort of dream. And whether that actual list becomes a reality or not, it almost doesn't matter unless you're, you know, I know a few people who really do want to go to every country in the world. You know, they, that's part of their deal. But I'd say for sure it's been uh, – it's helped just get people thinking about dreaming. And it, and it doesn't have to cost a lot of money. You don't have to be Elon Musk to have a bucket list and to be able to accomplish some of these things. It's, 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 it's much more, I would say, attainable and, and both monetarily and – the ability to do it than probably 20 years ago, Rolf. I mean, that's, I think that's a, a, a big, a big difference. And there's, and there's more ways to share it. I mean, the secret is out basically that, that, um, that that the money saving, the, the amazing surprises that come with travel, um, it's just so much easier to find out about them. And so we'll, we'll start our, our onward conversation by talking about how technology has sort of improved the journey in some ways. And then also it's made the journey weirder and more complicated, you know, on that idea of sitting in a hostel lounge where, where there's 20 people who would have been talking to each other before all looking at their screens. And I think there's good things and bad things. Um, a joke I've been 20, telling for 20 years and it keeps changing is that 20 years ago when I was on Kaosan Road, the big backpacker ghetto in Bangkok, I would see signs that said, we haven't heard from our son in two months have you seen him, right? <laughs> and 20 years ago, that struck me as ridiculous because it used to be in the hippie, in hippie trail eras, they, maybe that sign would show up after two years, right? right. Um, before email, when it was just paying $20 for a phone call that you made once or twice a year, well, suddenly right. it was the dial-up email era. So it felt, like, it, it felt like two months was sort of absurd. Well, now, I think there was a story that came out of Peru or Ecuador a few years ago that I, somebody had been missing for two days and their parents freaked out. I mean, the expectation <laughs> of, of connectivity yeah, yeah. has changed so yeah. much that now the idea of not hearing from someone for two months sounds terrifying when that, when it, that seemed yeah, absurdly yeah. simple to me 20 years ago. So I think it's it's all relative and it's easy to fool ourselves into thinking that these new technological tools are now the ground zero of human activity when in fact... It's actually so much more convenient than it used to be um, that, in a way, we just need to figure out how to use this technology to help us and not to turn us into complete morons who are staring at our phone all day. Totally. The, and again, there's no, I see no right or wrong way. And just the, you know, probably the most important thing is to get out there and, and do it. And if, if a phone helps you do that, and bring you that confidence by reading other people's stories and or giving you tools to build safety for yourself. That is wonderful. I know many of my female colleagues at uh, Airtrex and Boots and all, they, they love the safety and security that the phone brings to them because before they get into an Uber, they tell a friend, here's my trip, here's where I'm going. Mm. Things that maybe, you know, Rolf and I are not thinking about as much. They're just it, it brings them a, a huge layer of security. So, yeah, just lot, lots of ways to use it. It's, it's, I mean, and we're just touching the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's so much more to it. And, and you talk about how these companies engineer these products. I have some friends that at companies that do this sort of engineering. They've gotten into brain chemistry and they, they kind of know how to give you that dopamine hit mm. to bring you back. And, you know, they're. I'm wondering if it's going to be kind of like uh, 
50 years ago, doctors, when you went in for your appointment, they were smoking cigarettes. Yeah, it's fine to smoke cigarettes. It's great. <laughs> I'm wondering if 50, 60 years from now, they might be like, you know, we might have a, you know, they might, there might be some, let's call it second and third order consequences from hmm. the rise of this technology. I don't know what they are, but, you know, there well, might, there perhaps could be. <laughs> well, it's possible that these tools are so new to us and we're, we're engaging yeah. them uh, so naively that, that we'll, you know, hopefully we'll fine tune them down the line. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. one thing that I've come back to a lot as the technology has risen is that three big counterintuitive gifts of travel used to be that you got lonely, that you got lost, and you got bored. Uh, and yeah. when, you, when you got lonely, then that meant that you had a reason to talk to somebody sitting next to you in the room. If you got lost, yep. then you really had to pay attention to your surroundings. And by the time you were found again, then you knew that place, that city or that part of the country in a way that you may not have known before. And then when you get bored, you just use your, your inner resources. You, you use your own imagination and um, your own will to make it more interesting. Yep. And so, yep. so now the smartphone as a tool alone has made it harder to be lonely because, again, you can check yep. your Instagram influencers, you can text your mom, yep. uh, you can send a WhatsApp to your to your to your uh, trekking guide on on Mentawai Island. Yep. Um, you don't have to get lost because you have Maps Me. Again, that's something that I that I endorse. Maps Me it helped me get yep. unlost in Sumatra, and you don't have to get bored because, I, like, used to be, I, I'd carry like three books and two magazines in my backpack. Now I can just put yeah. stuff on pocket or Instapaper or, or just read stuff uh, online. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So I guess one of the most, one of the most valuable things I did before technology and I do a lot less of was journaling because I was so bored. I remember I had a tape player and maybe one tape and once in a while I'd switch it out at some bazaar. I'd find a Russian bazaar or something and get a new tape and of course, batteries ran out pretty quickly back then. Yeah. You could only listen to it a few times, but I do less journaling today, which was when I read my old journals, they were just very rich with, let's just call it self-introspection and part of the journey to know thyself. It's just part of the journey. And if we're not bored, not lost, and what was the third one there, Rolf? Lonely. Not lonely, we may not have the... We may not get to that point. Perhaps I don't know. Maybe there, maybe there's another way to do it. I know there, there's so many, so much self-development things coming out these well, days. So I just, yeah. Maybe that'll be an app too, where you can just sort of talk to your phone <laughs> at the end of the day, and it turns into a journal. But it's funny yeah. that you mentioned that because I kept before I left on this trip uh, around the world this winter, I was reading my old journals from my from much earlier travels. And I thought to myself, one of my resolutions was I'm going to keep, I'm going to journal this trip. And I did, I, I kept like 50,000 words this winter and, and kept a journal. And, you know, with a journal, hmm. your audience is pretty small, you know, it's just yourself yeah. and maybe you're going to, you turned into an article or something. But then I am um, using an, an audio device called Timmy, which you just, you upload a sound file and it converts it to text. And then you have to do some editing. Um, I converted my old 1994 journals um, from 25 years ago, and it was like time travel. Basically, I was in my 23-year-old head, and I was so grateful. It had been 25 years since I had gone to the trouble to keep that journal, but I'd so, I was so grateful that I had kept such a detailed journal because it was just like – Jumping into the TARDIS or the uh, or a Back to the Future car and being 23 again and just really knowing hmm. who this kid was and he was he was a pretty good kid you know and I I've forgotten yeah, so much yeah. about him so I actually have yeah. Lavinia Spalding she wrote a book called do you know Lavinia I do I do yeah so she wrote a book called Writing Away which is about journaling and so I'm gonna I'm gonna devote an entire episode to the art of travel journaling because I'm I'm with you that that is a great yeah. way to to navigate. Being lonely, lost, and bored, but also having all these new and amazing experiences happen to you. And then one other thing to, to, to add on to something that you talked about was that um, the Walkman. Yeah, I remember sometimes I would buy AA batteries for Walkman, and, right. and it's like, oh, this, this battery costs like five cents. And then you put it in your Walkman, and it, and it couldn't – it was not strong enough to turn a cassette recorder. So I'm not sure what it was used for. But um, I actually wrote an article years ago about um, – Basically not having the right – or hearing a James Brown song from my neighbor's hotel room and basically eavesdropping so I could hear a James Brown song and feeling so patriotic 
that James Brown was American and how that music made me feel. And that's just something that doesn't happen anymore. You know, I can listen to every, I can easily, along with everything else, along with my library of books and and all of my apps, I can listen to every single song James Brown ever wrote. I don't have to tiptoe into a hotel hall room and, and eavesdrop on some Russians who are playing James Brown. So, it's it's funny how dated the Walkman has seemed to become in oh, these years later. Totally, and it was such a big thing back then. It reminds me of just as you talk about journaling. One of the things I'm just kind of realizing right now is, of course, there's ways to write and journal your travels and or life through blogs and social media. The difference, of, I think, probably the main difference I'm thinking about is that you're writing for an audience of one, so your filter is maybe more raw mm. perhaps and more truth not that not that we don't put the truth out there but i think we subconsciously when we're writing we're looking for oh does this image look good do i not look fat or whatever the things are that you want to show yourself as versus what is the truth here really well, well, <laughs> which can be hard to look at sometimes right i mean yeah so. Oh, it can. And sometimes you don't know yourself, which is a funny thing about reading my 1994 journals. And, and you mentioned before that like an uptick in social media suicides, um, however that's categorized yeah. these days. And I think it's yeah. because everybody edits themselves. Everybody puts yeah. a, a handsomer, smarter, more insightful version of themselves on social media. And so all this yeah. knucklehead stuff I was putting in my journal in 1994, there's probably 23-year-old Rolf would not put that out in the public these days. And it probably doesn't totally. deserve it totally. to be out in the public. But I was, by the end of the, I was really trying to figure out where my life was headed. I was really an sure. introspective kid. I was a little bit of a narcissist. And it's funny how condescending I was towards the idea of like a 35-year-old. <laughs> like in my journal, <laughs> When I was 23, you know, the, the idea that anybody would be 35 just seemed absurd, right? So yeah. there's some funny things going back. And, and this, is, this is another advantage of, of journaling is you can go back and, and just see the arrogance of youth in this particular situation or even the insecurity of youth. There were, just, there were times when I, just, I was just really uncertain about my future, and I wasn't afraid to say that in this journal. And it's really interesting to read it all those years later. Totally. It might be fun, you know, because we're – as we approach – 50 here, Rolf. I don't know. I think you're right, right around my age in the next few years. Might be fun. I haven't talked to Tony Wheeler in a few years, but to ask him these same questions because he's just, you know, probably one generation older than us. Yeah. And he does remember the, of course, the 60s and 70s. And he's still, you know, even though he's, you know, he's still doing a lot of independent travel. And I always find his perspective equally, you know, just really fascinating and interesting. So. Yeah, Tony Wheeler, if, if listeners yeah. don't know who that is, he's, he founded Lonely Planet. Um, and of course, the, the market share of Lonely Planet has changed in 20 years, too, because people get their information totally. from so many sources. But last totally. season, I talked to uh, Kevin Kelly, the co-founder of Wired Magazine, who who traveled, who just did just some pure, pure vagabonding in the 1970s. And it was really interesting to hear his perspective. And so I feel like I could almost do an entire uh, podcast season of talking to it, like maybe a generation ahead of us and a generation behind us, sort of talking about what has stayed the same and, and what has changed about travel, what has been lost and what you can still find on the road. It's, it's interesting to think about. Yeah. There is. There's a lot of wisdom from our elders that was there when I was younger. I don't know if I had the courage to listen to it though. And I, yeah. you could almost see history repeat itself over the generations. The longer I study it, there was wisdom there, but was I, was I open to it? I don't know. You know, well, if, if my 1994 yeah. journal is any indication, it's, it's a combination. Like there was sometimes when, when yeah. air quotes old people talk to me in this journal, yeah. like people in their 40s, which of course you and I are in our 40s now, sometimes they would say things that are self-evident to me now, you know, like maybe you, yeah. should, you should think about what you really want in life. Yeah. And I was just blown away by that. And other times they would give me good advice and it's just like, oh yeah, here's an old person. What do they know? And I think that that will never change. That will never change. Yeah. And, yeah. and God yeah. bless you if you're whatever, if you're 17 or 23 yeah. and listening totally. to this now and, and taking it to heart. But yeah. I think that totally. that it's almost a part of being young and going through this process. Yeah. I think the important thing is not whether or not you take the advice of your elders, but being out on the sure. road and asking those questions, like asking the right questions and and really being honest with yourself that's what counts because uh, i remember getting a lot of advice from at the time it was baby boomers the generation ahead of me before i traveled sure. 
before I traveled, and it was decent advice, but it didn't mean the same. I mean, it was almost like reading Walt Whitman. I read Walt, Walt Whitman sure. in English class um, in college, but then when I bought a copy of Leaves of Grass in Montana and was hiking through the forest and reading Walt Whitman, it was just like finding a new religion or Different. something. It's, it's the, the experiential totally. aspect of knowledge and education is is really, really a blessing of travel. It does make a difference when you're out there doing it too, because you're more vers- I mean, I probably one of the another great part of about vagabonding and indie travel that I think is related to this is just it's being open to fail. Mm. And yeah. and getting out getting outside of the bubble of comfort and known knowns and moving into the unknowns and just getting used to falling on your face in one way, shape or form and being okay with it. Cause that's how, I mean, to me, that's how I really learn. And when I look at other mentors and people in my life, we, you know, sometimes we learn bad habits from quote victories and Mm. it's, it's through, and I'm not talking about devastating loss, but just, you know, you make a wrong turn at the wrong time of night and you get your wallet stolen, you know, Oh man, I better be more thoughtful next time or (laughs) then than just kind of wandering through life like everything's a bubble. Well, this is another so, this is another yeah. instance of the of the Instagram influencer maybe misleading us is that we we assume that there's people who who are always beautiful and are always making the right decision in their travels and they're not being knuckleheads and they're not actually I, I posted a thing on Instagram this this winter of me like trying to take a self portrait of myself under a waterfall and it was so comically <laughs> It was such a comic failure that I posted it to Instagram and just said, look, for every beautiful influencer picture you see, you see this knucklehead who's getting knocked over by the waterfall water and is suddenly worried <laughs> that there's going to be a flash flood. And that's it. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more that, that setting up to fail, yeah. you know, you talked about uh, bucket lists and people who want to travel every country in the world. I think that the happier traveler is going to be someone who at country 12 realizes that it doesn't matter Going to every country yeah. in the world doesn't matter, but that if you fall in love with country number 12 and you feel compelled to live there for six weeks or six months or six years, that's what counts, that you have to have the wisdom to let the bucket list go, to let the I'm going to travel to every country in the world um, conviction go and realize um, what you want and, and, and in the process who you are. You know, it's an old, it's a tired old phrase like find yourself through travel, but that's what it is. It's going out, it's making mistakes, it's learning who you are when you fail. It's learning, it, it's, it's waking up one morning and realizing that you don't want to cross off your bucket list because you love the place where you are so much and you discovered something, be it a hobby or a person, that you had no idea existed when you started traveling. And so, man, the ragged edges of travel are everything, I think. Oh. It is. It's the it's the best part, and it might be the the part that's hardest to sell. Much like, you know, when we say it's not about the the photos in front of the icons of the world, it's about that the the funny parts where things don't go right. Because actually, I did see those photos of you on on Instagram. I think you shared them with me. They are funny, and I give you a lot of credit, Rolf, for being vulnerable like that, right? Because you know we're. We're not as uh, young and handsome as maybe we were 20 years ago. I'll put I'll, I'll put those in the show notes. There's there's a, a very specific waterfall in Sumatra where I'm just failing very miserably to look cool. Um, it, it feels like that's um, like this is the pinnacle of, of our advice. But I want to continue going through this. But I mean, yeah, that's, let's that's, keep going. Yeah. That's one thing to to really keep home is that it's those failures that make you who you are when you travel. And if you're not leaving yourself open to the failures, then maybe you should should rethink your travels. But um, we were talking about Tony Wheeler and Kevin Kelly. One thing that Kevin Kelly did is that he took photos. That was his mission when he traveled. Well, now you have a phone in your pocket and it has sort of redefined, this is going back to my essay, about how photos work. And this is something that surprised me actually in Sumatra is that it used to be if I took out a camera with a local farmer, I had to be very careful because I was worried that he sure. would know what I was doing. Like, I'm going to take a picture yeah. of you. Is it okay? I don't want to be exploitative. Yeah. Now the farmer will take out his own smartphone and take your picture. Sure. I mean, it, exactly. It, and this this is something that, and it, it's probably been out there for a while, but this really, it was driven home, I think, because Asia, Southeast Asia is my old stomping ground. And the last time I traveled this slowly through Southeast Asia, the photo dynamic was different. I posed for so many. Indonesian pictures this winter like I was I was always posing I mean for years it was it was the westerner with his expensive camera asking the local person to pose for a picture 
that dynamic yeah. has has completely mixed up. And now, for every picture I took of a of a Sumatran when I was in Sumatra, two Sumatrans, two Indonesians took a picture of me, or, or and and sometimes Malaysians. Like there were Malaysians were were visiting. Um, like Mananjau or Lake Toba, and and I was a part of their vacation. They weren't traveling as far yeah, as I was, yeah. but um, I was an interesting part of their trip. And so I think that photo dynamic has changed. I don't know if you've if you've noticed this in your own travels, but I really did this. Oh, so much. I mean, you 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 hit on it. I mean, everything from the selfie movement, ah, right. You know, yeah. the whole selfie movement to just, I I mean, it's it's so easy. And I don't know if you remember when we had a walk together in uh, Hood River last summer, mm. Rolf. You know, I asked you kind of at the top of the the hike. I, I did a quick video of you, and I said, "Hey, send a send a message to my kids." You know, I'm gonna I'm I'm putting together a series of uh, videos for them. What kind of wisdom or anything about me, whatever. And you for like 15, uh, maybe 30 to 45 seconds, just kind of talked about maybe our friendship or whatever about travel and I, and then they're going to get that when they're older. Oh wow. That to me is a cool way to connect to people that you care about. I mean, that was something that I couldn't have even dreamed of 20 years ago. I mean, when I went on my first big trip, I mean, I only had like two rolls of film and I saved it for people's faces. Right. Because back then, you know, you didn't have the digital camera and it was, I, I'm like, how can I take a picture of the Potala Palace that's going to be better than this postcard? That's yeah. what I remember. So I just, I'll get a few postcards and, but there were some people that I met that you, you get a picture of them. So it's, it's, yeah, I mean, I, I do take a lot of pictures today. It's usually to remember moments or, or something, but I, you know, I'm not on, I'm not on Instagram. I know, you know, a lot of my colleagues and you know, friends really enjoy it and get a lot of value and connect to different stories. You know, of course, you know, the, the, the site, I think it's called Humans of New York. They do such a good job of just one photo and a story about a person and what matters to them. And of course, independent travel or vagabonding is a great way to connect with those very people in the flesh versus reading it on Instagram. So, I mean, yeah, I mean the whole photo movement. I it's it's I don't even know what to say about it. I think you kind of hit on it. It's just really changed so many dynamics. Well, it's funny that you mentioned humans of New York because I I did a little mini feature on Instagram this winter called um, People of Sumatra, where I just it gave me an excuse to learn a little bit more about every person, not every person, but everybody who interested sure. me that I met, and then I had these little reports, and I think discovering people and learning how people live in a part of the world that's not at all like the place where you live has always been a gift to travel. And so technology oh. has given us a, prefix, a pretext to have a conversation with them, a conversation with friends and family, like making that video for your kids, and then a conversation with yourself. Because I tell you, back in the film day, when I was a cheap backpacker 20 years ago, I didn't buy that much film. I didn't take that many pictures because no. it yeah. cost money. You had to get them developed. I yeah. The year 1999, I have maybe I have less than 100 pictures from 1999. Um, whereas in 2019, there's some days where I probably I, I know I went to some the Pachujawi cow races in Sumatra. I know I took more than 100 pictures there. And so, what the, what the camera phone has enabled us to do for all of its potential distraction and for all of the selfie narcissism, it's allowed us to, as we have conversations with local people and with our family, to have conversations with ourselves. You know, I can go yeah. back now to, to 2011, to 2014, and um, I have been more uh, thorough in my photographing that it really sparks my memory in a way that's almost a parallel to a journal, that I have these photos that yeah. really tell the story of my trip because I don't have to worry about spending too much money on those photos because it's, it's, it's as free as your phone. Totally, totally. I mean, I use, you know, probably like a lot of listeners, uh, Google Photos. And now I'm at the point where it says, on this date, seven years ago. Yeah. Right. And there'll be some videos and pictures of an experience in my hometown or somewhere on my travels. And, you know, I would never, well, never, I would very unoccasionally go look at my photos. Right. Unless someone brought it up and, you know, who, who wants to see someone else's photos? Someone's got to be really interested. So it, it's just been a like you said, that's a great point. It, it's helped unintentional journaling. You know, um, part four in my essay was that travel is as cheap as ever. I wonder if we can dovetail this. Uh, what ways do you think tra uh, technology has made travel cheaper? The popular places 
get more expensive faster because you know, I would say in general, humans can flock to, you know, something, they have that FOMO, whether it's, I don't know if you saw the, the, the festival, the fire festival. Yeah. I saw that documentary on Netflix. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, that's a good example. I'd say in general, I mean, that's an extreme example, but of how humans can flock to popular places and drive the price up. But the, 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 the other side of that, I think is exactly what you mentioned. There are so many places globally. And I will even say in the United States, Rolf, that are incredibly inexpensive. San Francisco, New York are some of the most expensive cities in North America and the world. And then, you know, go to Tulsa, Oklahoma or remote parts of Oregon, Washington, they're, and they're, they're, they're equally beautiful. You're not going to get probably the same culture and, of course, density of, of people, but you can live much more economically there and or even travel there economically. Airbnbs mm. are not that expensive there. I mean, it's a little bit more expensive than Sumatra, but not much, surprisingly. So it's, I, I agree with your thesis. That, I mean, overall, it appears that this the, the difference and it's going to remain, it's, it, we're going to be able to travel inexpensively outside of, you know, major destinations. And even in the, you know, it's just harder to stay in big cities for a long time because the, you know, the, the cost is generally higher. I know my first few trips, I just kind of avoided London and some of these big cities because I was just saw my bank account going down so fast, you know, going to the coast of England, it's a lot less expensive. The beers are cheaper. The hostels cheaper. Yeah. So on and so forth. So, <laughs> I, I think that's that's a great that's almost a, a third point is that people are going to cluster yeah. because of FOMO or, or yeah. because of top ten yeah. lists. People are going to cluster the popular yeah. places, yeah. but then these other places are going to going to remain emptier. You know that we don't have enough people to over to over tourist every place in the world, and no. I think no. this might even go back to to first grade geography class that the first thing you learn about Russia is that the capital is Moscow, you know, and so you know yeah. one city. What you know about any country is its is its biggest city. And I think sure. it's cities are beautiful places. I love going to them and and some of my favorite places in the world like New York or Paris are cities, but once you realize that you're not obligated to go to those places, I talk to a lot of Europeans and they're here, oh, yes, we will go to Florida and we will go to Las Vegas and Los Angeles. Right. And it's just like you have no idea just Take that accent and road trip across the Great Plains, and people will just oh. be completely smitten with you. And so, totally, totally. So, I really think, and, and by the way, uh, uh, when I was in Hawaii last year, um, I, I think it was Lihue, I was in, um, I think it was the Hui. Of, yeah, Lihue. Um, Kauai. I, uh, I, in Kauai, yeah, I stayed at, uh, at couch surfing. And the funny thing is, is I was yeah. looking, I was looking for a hotel. I wasn't looking to save money, but it was all sold out. Like Kauai was all yeah. sold out that week, and so I went to couch surfing and stayed at a beautiful place there. And so that's another, yeah. uh, that's another point about how technology has made things cheaper because it's just this yeah. service it's couch surfing is a service that that hooks up generous people who like hosting people with uh, people who like to be hosted and i had a great great time there so oh awesome cool yeah it's we're we're, we're very lucky it feels like a you know the six the 60s and 70s maybe weren't you know today could be the glory days of vagabonding uh and it's just right here, but sometimes we look back with fondness and history, but perhaps today is the best time ever to do it. That's a great, that's a great way of thinking about it. The, 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 basically, yeah. the, the golden age is always is right now. now, you know? Yeah. And, uh. and that's something I think Kevin Kelly touched on when I talked to him last season, that, that basically, if you don't realize the, the, the magic and the wonder and the holiness of every moment that you have, um, then and actually Major Jackson, who's a poet I talked to last uh, year, he talked about how if you're idealizing a, a past era, then some it's a little bit of uh, an annihilation of the present. You're making the present a little yeah. bit of a hell because you're idealizing a place that cannot be revitalized. And so regardless of 100%. of how we look at the year 2019 and the year 2039, and, and let's face it, probably people will, will wish they were alive in 2019 compared to 2039. Um, right. be it because things are too convenient or, or whatever. Um, right, right. It's, it's good to remember that, that the moment is what you have and you make the most of it and you, you find ways to, to balance your technology so that it helps you instead of distracts you and it makes you happier instead of more depressed. And that's a good way to go. Totally, totally. I mean, we've, 
through Boots and All and Air Tricks, we've helped millions of people over the past few decades do this sort of travel, mm. Rolf. And, you know, the, the sort of feedback we get, I mean, very infrequently do people regret doing it. On occasion, there's someone that just didn't have a good a good trip, but really, it's a resounding kind of 99.9 percent of people go. I, even if they had some issues, which the longer you travel, you're gonna have issues. Something's not gonna go like you planned, and that's part of the beauty of it. So it's, yeah, it's, it's just yeah. No, I'm I'm with you, and I think. Uh, that's an, another advantage of long-term travel is that you get out of the consumer mindset of a vacation and you stop evaluating it on whether or not you're getting your money's worth or whether or not you're having as much fun as you paid for. And then you're just discovering the world and you're discovering yourself and you're discovering other people and other yeah. cultures. And it, it just, it, it makes everything bigger, including your life. So, um, 100%. given, given your, your more than 20 years of experience as a traveler and <laughs> as a as a travel industry guy through through boots and all and, and air tracks what what's something to leave people with what should uh the you know the, the listener who's who's driving to work right now or washing dishes at home what's uh what's a good thing for them to keep in mind as they dream about travels looking forward um well there's there's so many things i, I think no matter where you're at in life, whether you're a young person, uh, recently retired, wherever you're at, it's, it's, it's something that's worthwhile considering. I think most people want to do it. I would say, uh, it's, it's probably more achievable than you even realize. I think one of the biggest things that we see people say, Oh, I don't have enough money. I don't have enough money. Um, there are so many ways to do it that it is inexpensive and you, you don't have to to have a hundred thousand, hundred thousand dollars to do a long-term vagabonding trip at all. So that, I mean, that's probably, you know, I, I, I guess if you have young people in your life that are considering it, you know, we'd like to see a, a vagabonding trip or gap year on every resume. We think that we think it's as valuable as a college education, perhaps more in many instances, especially some of the liberal arts stuff out there with how expensive it's getting today in North America. So. Uh, that's probably what I'd leave them with, Ralph. I couldn't agree more. You could travel around the world five times, Sean, for less than it would cost to go to a private school <laughs> in the U.S. and learn more. It's crazy. And and start a business. And who knows what you can do on that trip? I mean, it's, you're going to make contacts and, and, and relationships that last a lifetime. So. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to the travel community Boots and All and Airtrex, which organizes round-the-world flight itineraries for vagabonders, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Thank you.